Welcome. Dr. Ruth continues to explain more of God's laws in today's teaching. Okay, this is Dr. Ruth. We are continuing here with the teaching in the book of Deuteronomy. In, in today's session, I will teach on Deuteronomy chapters 24 to 26. So if you have your Bibles, get to Deuteronomy chapter 24, or if you do not have your Bibles, just listen along. We begin with chapter 24. So what is the gist of this chapter? In this chapter, we will learn how the Lord would give an ordinance protecting the divorced woman. In essence, this ordinance is to prevent divorce and to make people think twice before they consider divorce. And I must say this, because some people have accused the Lord that in these verses, he is encouraging divorce. Never, never, never. God dislikes divorce. That is explicit throughout the scriptures. But divorce was something that was already happening during that culture at that time. So God was providing ordinances to, in essence, place barriers to divorce and make it difficult for people to divorce and also to protect the woman who is divorced because back then in that culture, like I have said before, women could not walk outside the home. The woman had to rely on the husband for her livelihood. And to be divorced was like a curse. You would become the scorn of the town. And there was a potential that you would not remarry. It was a possible recipe for poverty, shame, and disgrace. So God had to give these provisions or these laws to really prevent divorce and to protect the woman whose husband might just get up one day and say, I divorce you because I don't like the way you make my tea. So God was trying to make it difficult for people to have a divorce. So with that brief background, let's take a look at these verses. Praise the Lord. Jesus is Lord. I'm trusting God you are doing great today. And I thank you for joining me today as we continue to study the word of God real quick. I just want to say, for those of you who have been listening to me for some time, I am trusting God you have been growing in his word. You have been blessed. And if you are listening to me for the first time, welcome. And I trust God that you will be blessed, 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 because the word of God never returns void. Friends, here's the situation. As you have been blessed by these teachings, did you know that the word of God teaches that as you bless us back with your financial giving, God himself will be certain to bless you back abundantly, exceedingly. I'm sure you know this, right? But let me just share with you the words of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, out of the Gospel of Luke 6, 38, out of the NIV. It teaches, give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaking together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
in context that the Lord Jesus is saying, as you give into his work, God will be certain to give it back to you abundantly, exceedingly. So friend, I just ask you to open your hearts to bless us with a one-time donation so we can put it right back into this uh, podcast uh, ministry and pay for studio time to produce more teachings that are blessing you and will bless many, many others. Remember, give and it shall be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaking together and running over will be poured into your lap. As you give into God's word, God will give it back to you abundantly and exceedingly. Most importantly, you will be helping us to transform lives. So here are three ways you can give. Visit our safe and secure website, drruthtanyi.org slash donate and make a one-time donation right there. Uh, whatever amount the Lord puts into your heart, we receive that. So uh, all you need is an internet access. You can do this anywhere in the world, drruthtanyi.org slash donate. And if you live here in the USA, we also receive donations through Cash App. And the name there is the dollar sign, Dr. Ruth Tanyi. Again, for Cash App, the dollar sign, Dr. Ruth Tanyi. And also, if you live here in the USA, you can uh, send uh, your donation through Zelle. And here is a telephone number for Zelle, 909-501-9031. Again, that telephone number is 909-501-9031. 031. And from the bottom of our heart here at the ministry, we say thank you. And most importantly, God says thank you for your generous love donation into his work so we can produce more programs to reach out to many, many others. And as I have read out of Luke 638, God is faithful. God will bless you back abundantly, exceedingly until it overflows. So friend, we thank you for your donation today. And uh, here is the teaching. Beginning here with verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 24. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, verse 2. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes a wife of another man, verse 3, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then, verse 4, her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. Boy, this would be a a sad situation if this woman had to go through multiple divorces like these verses are saying. Again, remember, this is a hypothetical situation, but it happened. Things like this happened in this culture. So God is saying that your husband who divorced her the first time because you claim you didn't like her, you cannot turn around now, change your mind, and go remarry her. No. So that way they would think twice before divorcing their wife in the first place, okay? Those, uh, the rest of those verses just went on to say that it would be a detestable 
thing in the eyes of the Lord if that first husband would attempt to go back and remarry her. God is like, no, you won't go back. You have one shot at this thing. Think twice before you divorce. Okay? Again, I have to always say this. Christ has fulfilled all of these laws because today we have people who have been divorced and many years later remarry. That is acceptable, okay, because some of these people, especially Christians who have remarried, they came to realize that they did it the wrong way. They came to the realization that it was not God's will for them to divorce. It is never God's will for divorce, except Jesus said in the New Testament that the one grounds for divorce is infidelity. But even with that, there is always hope for restoration if the a couple is willing to go through counseling and to seek spiritual guidance. So there is always hope. Nonetheless, today there are people, Christians, who have divorced and then many years later realized that it was for stupid things and they had gone and sought counseling and they have remarried. That is acceptable. That is acceptable. Okay, I just needed to clarify that because we are no longer under this law because Christ Jesus fulfilled the law. But the principle is still the same that God dislikes divorce and God is trying to prevent divorce from happening. That is a principle we are learning here. God placing barriers, thereby preventing the first husband to want to go back and remarry the first wife or the wife that he divorced originally. Uh, those were all barriers that the Lord is placing, okay? So I hope you get that. The principle is the same. God dislikes divorce, but today, of course, you can remarry as unto the Lord. That would be pleasing to God because God does not like divorce, okay? We come to verse 5. If a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. Boy, wouldn't this be a blessing if this would happen today? The principle behind here is that the Lord wanted to allow that one year as a period where the couple would learn to grow as a couple enjoy their marital bliss, grow together without any external problems, without any external hurdles, without any external stressors coming upon them. So this one year was supposed to allow them to just focus on their relationship, focus on themselves and focus on God and grow. Then the second year they can step out. So by the time they step out on the second year, they would be so grounded that external pressures would have less impact on their marriage. So true, this principle. There, time is necessary to grow in a relationship. That is the principle right there. Okay. We come down to verse 6. It's just warning them how do not take a pair of milestones, not even the upper one as security for a debt because that would be taking a person's livelihood as security. The principle here is that do not take something that is a security for somebody as a down payment for a debt. That is what is uh, that is what is being taught here. Verse 7 uh, teaches how kidnappers, anyone who kidnaps a fellow Israelite, is to be put to death. You must push the evil from among you. 
verses 8 and 9 talks about dealing with defiling skin diseases. We covered all of this in the book of Leviticus. Moses is just reiterating to the new generation Israelites when they get into the promised land that the, the priest, the Levitical priest, would give special instructions how to care for defiling skin diseases, okay? And in verse 9, he is just reminding them what happened to Miriam, that whole incident where Miriam became leprous and she was put in isolation for about a week, just reminding them that somebody who, who has a defiling skin disease should not mingle with the crowd, thereby prevent contamination or spread of that disease. That is what those verses are saying there. Verses 10 all the way through verse 13 is really interesting. The gist of these verses is that when you make a loan, actually, let me just read this. It is self-explanatory. Verse 10, when you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. That, that makes sense, right? Because <laughs> if you go to somebody's house, they may hurt you. Don't put yourself in harm's way. Again, God offering protection to these people. Verse 11, stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. That makes sense. Don't go into somebody's house and take something as a down payment when you're borrowing the money. That is not wisdom. They could hurt you. Verse 12, if the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with your pledge in your possession. God providing provision for the poor. Verse 13, return their clock by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Remember back then the clocks, clocks, however you want to pronounce it, was a priceless possession for some people, especially those who were poor. That was all they had to provide some kind of a shelter at night time. So the Lord is saying that don't take it away from them. Okay, you must return it. Otherwise, I will be angry with you. That is what the rest of those uh, verses are saying. Verse 14 here, the Lord is warning them not to take advantage of a hired worker, okay, who is poor and needy. Wow. Verse, uh, again, we see the Lord's provision care and the heart for the underprivileged in the society, which is still the same. We as employers should not take advantage of those we employed because they are vulnerable. Even the government will, would punish you if you did that. All of these principles came from God right here in the Bible. We serve a God of compassion for the underprivileged and for the poor. Verse 15 Pay them their wages each day before sunset. We talked about this in the book of Numbers, how God warned the wealthier Israelites that they should pay their employees at the end of the day when they have offered their services to them. Pay them on the same day. And the principle is still applicable today. When we hire people, we have to pay them at the end of the work week. At least here in the U.S., the work week could be two weeks, one week, one month, or even one day. Bottom line, we have to pay people when they are through with the job. Okay. Otherwise, if they did not do that, God would not be pleased. That is what those verses went on to say. 
Verse 16, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sins. That is obvious, right? Self-explanatory accountability. God holds each of us accountable for our own wrongdoing, which is so true today. Each of us will stand before the Lord and give an account of our life. We cannot say, well, my parents didn't tell me this. My parents did this. Oh, no, no, no. You have a conscience. <laughs> God will judge each of us individually. Okay. Uh, verse, nine, verse 17 just talks about caring for the widow. God's heart for the widowed. Verse 18, the Lord is reminding them that they should care for the underprivileged, for the widowed and for the poor and for the hired workers or slaves because they themselves were once slaves in Egypt. I really like the way the Lord is reminding them that don't forget your past. Don't forget where you came from. Just like today, there are Christians who are really hard on the unbelievers. They are so hard on the unbelievers. What really helps me a lot in dealing with the unbelievers when I see their ungodly ways and practices, I have to remind myself that there was a time in my life, long, 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 long time ago, that I was just as ignorant as they, they, those unbelievers, rather. When I put myself in the unbeliever's shoes and I remind myself that there was a time in my life when I was just as ignorant, I did not know any better, I have compassion for them. So before we label unbelievers, before we are too hard on them, we have to remember that we were once like them at one point. And a lot of times we are expecting too much from them. They are blind and lost. They don't know any better. Again, that is no excuse for ungodly behaviors. I will never condone that. But all I'm saying is that we should we should have some compassion when we are dealing with the unbelievers because at one point, some of you were unbelievers too, who were just as lost, okay? At least from that perspective, you can minister to them with, with the love of God and the compassion of God. So we see a similar thing here where the Lord is telling the Israelites that, hey, listen, you were once slaves in Egypt, so take it easy with the slaves. Extend some love and compassion to them because you were once slaves. Put yourself in their shoes, okay? Okay, verses 19 all the way to the end of this chapter is just highlighting God's love for the poor. The Lord is making provision to take care of the poor. Let's take a look at some of these verses. Verse 19, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you. Okay, when we come down to verse 20 there, when you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Verse 21, when you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. 
Verse 22, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I commanded you to do this. So true. God making provisions in his law for the Israelites to take care of the poor and underprivileged. They should not go over their vineyards the second time to gather all of the fruits. Leave the excess for the poor. And like I said earlier, when we get to the book of Ruth, we're going to see this ordinance in operation, how Ruth, who was an underprivileged Moabite, was gleaning in the vineyards of the Hebrews or the Jews because the Jews or the Israelites were not to go on their vineyard to collect fruits the second time, so the excess were left there for the poor. So we we, we will learn how Ruth, who was a Moabite, was gleaning from their field, collecting excess food. And in the process of her doing that, supernaturally, by divine intervention, she came in contact with, with Boaz, Boaz, rather, who later became her husband. What a powerful story of God's sovereignty, God's provision, and God's love. Okay, so that brings us to the end of that chapter there. Okay, so we come straight away to chapter 25 in the book of Deuteronomy. What is the gist of this chapter in chapter 25? We will learn further laws. The Lord would give Moses to teach or to expound to the second generation Israelites about justice and about living peacefully with one another and other laws pertaining to preserving the family line or the family inheritance. So let us get straight away into this chapter. I begin with verse 1 out of Deuteronomy chapter 25. I will read this out loud. When people have a dispute, they are to take it to court and the judges will decide the case, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. Isn't this so powerful? This is the way our judiciary system should run. But unfortunately, innocent people get accused and sometimes those who are guilty are acquitted, which is not godly at all. But we live in a fallen world, there is injustice. But here we see the Lord stating clearly that those who are innocent should be acquitted and those who are guilty should be punished. Okay, verse 2, if the guilty person deserves to be beaten, the judge shall make them lie down and have them flogged in his presence with the number of lashes the crime deserves. So powerful, we see the Lord giving them instructions how the punishment must equal the crime. And verse 3 talks about how 40 lashes has to be imposed as the punishment. Anything more than that would be a disgrace. That is what the rest of those verses are saying. Verse 4 is really interesting. It says, do not muzzle an ox while it is threading out the grain. Apparently, Oxes were used to thread the grain, and during the process of the oxes threading the grain, it would 
uh, split it into the kernels and the shaft. And while the oxes were doing that, they would be able to actually eat as well. So here we are told that the Israelites were warned. You have to remember the Israelites were mostly farmers and shepherds. So we see the Lord actually telling them how to even take care of the animals <laughs> that would help them in their farming. Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Because if they were to do that, it would be inhumane. And obviously it would prevent the ox from actually carrying out its job of preparing the grain. And this is uh, interesting because the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe in 1 Corinthians 9, used this illustration to highlight how a Christian worker, i.e. a Christian minister or a Christian pastor or a Christian Bible teacher of the word should have full privilege to receive offerings from the people that him or her is teaching. So you can go back and look at that illustration that the apostle Paul made out of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, just to highlight in how when we as Bible teachers, ministers, and pastors, we, we teach the word, we should be allowed to depend on the offerings of the people that we are teaching because we spend countless hours preparing messages, at the very least, those who are receiving our teachings should bless us back by giving financially to support us. I wanted to just highlight that illustration there. Again, just to clarify, just like the ox had to be fed by the Israelites while the animal was preparing the grain, which would later feed the Israelite family, likewise, the minister or the pastor, or the priest who is diligently studying the Bible to preach the gospel and to teach and edify you, the listener, that minister has to be fed likewise while he or she is preparing to bring the message to you, which means through your regular giving and donation into the ministry or the church, the minister, pastor, or priest can be fed. We come to verse 5. Uh, verses 5 all the way to verse 10. Uh, some popular verses that have also been misunderstood. And also, uh, this practice is still going on in some areas of the world, such as in Africa or some other parts of the world. So let us take a look at some of these verses. Verse 5, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Verse 6, The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This is interesting. And in many cultures, I have heard stories like in some parts of Africa where some brothers have taken advantage of this because they had a lustful desire for their brother's wife. And when they 
the brother died, they quickly rushed to go marry the widowed without even giving the widow time to mourn. But the principle here that the Lord was teaching is that of maintaining the, the line of the family. You have to put the culture in mind. Like I had explained before, back then, the family name was like the identity card so that they could partake of the benefits of the nation of Israel. And also keep in mind, it was a theocracy back then where the religious and the civic or the social laws were all one and they were governed from God. They were God's laws and decrees. So this was so important that that family line was maintained so that that family would also partake of God's benefits to the nation so that family land and inheritance doesn't get lost, blotted out, or given to another family incorrectly. So this was a very significant thing in that culture. But again, Christ has fulfilled this. So we no longer are bound to this law. We don't have to maintain this. We don't. Even though today some people still want to carry this out because of their own selfish desires, really. Not because of the principles that God had in mind, like I had just explained when he gave this ordinance. And also, this ordinance was to protect the woman from poverty. Remember, I have talked about this over and over, how back then in this culture... The unmarried woman or the woman who became a widow had a very high probability of becoming poor because they had to depend on the men for their survival or their livelihood. So again, that was one of the reasons why the Lord gave this ordinance in essence to protect the woman from poverty. But like I said, this has been fulfilled in Christ. Okay? So let us proceed here in, in verse, uh, verses 7 all the way to verse 10. It just went on to explain that if the man or if the brother refused to marry the widowed, that widowed woman was to go to the elders of the town and report that her late husband's brother refused to marry her in order to advance the family line. And they were to call the late brother's brother in front of the elders of the town to investigate if it is true that he had refused to marry the brother's or the late brother's wife. And if it was found out that it is true that he did not want to marry the late brother's wife, the late brother's wife or the widow is to remove one of his sandals and then to spit on his face. And that, and in verse 10, we are told that man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Essentially, it was going to be like a curse. So, again, we see a provision here where the brother still had the right to say, no, I'm not going to marry her. But then if he, if he chose that, that uh, 
spitting on his face and removing one of his sandals had to take place as a sign to say that this family is a family of the unsandaled. That is what that is teaching us. But like I said, Christ has fulfilled these laws and we are no longer under these laws. So if your brothers or if your brother dies, you do not have to go marry <laughs> his widow. No, you, you, you are not supposed to marry his widow. The widow is allowed by the Lord to remarry as unto the Lord, obviously, and to give birth to children who would then inherit and advance the family line. So this is no longer the case today. Okay, we come to verse 11 where the Lord gave another provision. If two men are fighting and uh, one of the wives of one of the men comes and grabs the crush or the private parts of, of the other man, uh, the lady's hand is to be cut off. That is verse 12. Again, because an act like that would be malicious because you are trying to destroy the man's private part, which has the potential of uh, leading to some infertility or some other disease. So the Lord is saying that if you did that, your hand shall be cut off. Wow. God had to really give these people. I know some of you are listening to these laws and you may be laughing. But like I said earlier, even in the book of Leviticus, these people had to be trained on the very basic ways of living with one another, interacting with one another, how else would they have known if the Lord did not provide such details, his chosen people, the Israelites, would have gotten into the promised land and they would have started to behave like the Canaanites, the Hittites, and that would have just interfered with God's divine purpose for the nation of Israel. So God had to take his time to really break down these laws to the tiniest details so nothing is missed. And God even provided hypothetical situations because he knew in his omniscience that these people would come into contact with such problems. So he already provided a solution or solutions to them before they even encounter the problem. Glory to God. God is so good. Just like today, we have answers to our problems here in the Bible, even before we are faced with the problem. What do we have to do? Study the Bible. Find out God's ways of resolving problems. Be grounded in God's ways so that when calamity strike, when the enemy attacks, we have the answers and the solutions right away. That is what we see happening here. God is already, or God was giving these people answers to problems that they would encounter in the promised land. Telling them how they would behave. God is awesome. Okay? Okay, so we come to verse 13. Verses 13 all the way to 16 is teaching the Israelites how to be fair just and honest in their business dealings. They should not have two different measures of weight to, to weigh things, one large, one small. They should use one scale. Again, the Lord teaching them to prevent trickery, to prevent deceiving one another with regards to business dealings. I mentioned this earlier. 
because some people uh, think that they are smart, they have two or multiple types of scales to weigh something. Something may weigh five pounds and only cost five bucks, but they will, they may lie to you and say, oh, this weighs 10 pounds and costs 20 bucks, which is a lie. So God was preventing all these types of uh, cheating and injustice by telling, telling them you cannot be dishonest in your business dealings. You must have one type of scales to measure things because, again, these people were farmers and shepherds. As farmers, they had to probably do a lot of weighing and measuring of fruits and, and goods. So God is preventing them from dishonest business dealings. Okay, we come to verse 17. Verse 17 is, um, the Lord is giving the Israelites through Moses instructions to have no treaty with the Amalekites because the Amalekites had not shown compassion to them. Again, this was then, this was how God was dealing with certain nations during the Old Testament time. Christ has fulfilled all of this, so we are to live in harmony with our neighbors, with our neighboring countries, okay? So we are not to have any enemies. We are to live in peace. So uh, in those verses, the Lord was just saying that the Amalekites were really harsh and, and uh, evil towards the Israelites, so the Israelites should have no mercy towards them. But again, Jesus Christ says we should love our enemies we should pray for our enemies. We should feed our enemies. So Christ has fulfilled all of these. So we are not to go about hating people. No, we should love people. We should pray for our enemies. So that brings us to the end of chapter 25. And we go right away to chapter 26. Okay, moving right along here to Deuteronomy chapter 26. What is the gist of this chapter? In this chapter, we will learn about specific instructions the Lord would give the Israelites pertaining to how they would bring their first fruits and tithing to him when they get into the promised land. And this is interesting the way the Lord would do this. In the process of them bringing their first fruits and tithing, the Lord would have them recite, in other words, say something about their past. That way, they would remember how Him, God, had delivered them and how their prosperity in the promised land is not because of their effort, but it is because of God's faithfulness. So let us take a closer look at some verses here, beginning with verse 1 out of Deuteronomy chapter 26. I will read this out loud. When you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and have taken possession of it and settled in it. Verse 2. Take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil 
of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. Verse 3. And say to the priest in office at that time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. So you see right away how they would take their first fruit after their produce and go to the priest who would be in office at that time. And they would acknowledge that this is my first fruit now that I am in the promised land. Uh, verse 4 talks about how the priest would uh, put that or put their first fruit in a basket and would set it down in front of the altar of the Lord. In verse 5, then you shall declare before the Lord your God. This is the declaration that the Israelites would say over their first fruit. And if you remember, we talked about first fruit before. Okay, so also remember the Israelites were mostly farmers and shepherds. So that first harvest was significant to them. So the Lord is telling them, you bring your first harvest as your first fruit offering to me as a way to acknowledge me for enabling you to reap this bountiful harvest. That is the principle going on in these verses. So going back to verse 5, the Israelites would declare, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. Going back to verse 5, you see how they would be declaring their past, i.e. that they were a wandering Aramean. Essentially, Aramean there is referring to a people out of the nation of Syria among the ancestors of Abraham, okay? This word Aramean is also used in the scripture in association with Jacob, because uh, Jacob, if you remember Jacob, we talked about Jacob. He spent uh, many years in that area there, in the ancient Aram area where he raised his family. So essentially, the Lord wanted the Israelites to declare that they were wanderers and they were descendants or they are descendants of Abraham and Jacob. And obviously, we know also um, Isaac. And how they wandered into the land of Egypt with just a few people. And eventually, they became a mighty nation. And in verse 6, they were also to confess how while they were in Egypt, they were being mistreated. Okay, they were subjected to hard labor. And then in verse 7, they were to recite that they cried out to the Lord. Okay, and the Lord heard their voice because of his promise to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in verse 8, they were to recite that the Lord brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Again, highlighting God's omnipotence there. Then you come to verse 9. 
they were also to recite how the Lord had brought them to the promised land, described their uh, flowing with milk and honey. And as I'm sure you've noted thus far, throughout the scripture, the promised land is described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Again, just highlighting prosperity in that land, a bountiful land with bountiful harvest, a land where the presence of the living God was going to be among the Israelites. So that is what the milk and honey is describing. And then in verse 10, after they had recited about their past and how the Lord delivered them and brought them into the promised land. Then they are to tell the priests that they have their first fruit. Okay. And they want to offer that to the Lord. And then uh, they have to place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him, acknowledging that God is truly their provider. Then in verse 11, then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. So in verse 11 there, the Lord is commanding them to rejoice because it is him who made the provisions available in their lives. So they and foreigners living among them should rejoice and be thankful and grateful to the Lord. Much like today, we give thanks to the Lord because of his provisions and his presence and his blessings in our lives. So, so far we see how the Lord just wanted the Israelites not to forget that even though they are blessed in the promised land. It is because of his presence and his faithfulness that engender that blessing. So that was why they were supposed to recite that. That way it would stick in their souls, preventing them from forgetting. Okay, we come to verse 12. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Again, we see how the Lord made provisions for the poor who would be residing among the Israelites. We see how they were to bring the tithing every third year. That uh, tithing on year number three was supposed to care for the fatherless and the widow. That way, everybody is blessed, everybody is fed, even the poor would be taken care of. Okay, in uh, verse 13, it is just highlighting how they, the Israelites, when they go to the Levite to present their tithing, they have to uh, verbalize how they have brought the best portion to the Lord and they have not hidden anything. Essentially, they have to verbalize that they are honest in bringing their tithing to the Levites who would then use that to bless the poor and the underprivileged. 
uh, verse 14 actually highlighted that as well. So let us read that. I have not eaten any of the sacred portion while I was in mourning, nor have I removed any of it while it was unclean, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God. I have done everything you commanded me. Again, just telling these people that they have to recite or acknowledge that they are honest in the giving to the poor and the foreigner, foreigners rather through the hands of the Levite. Then in verse 15, after they had recited about their past, about God's provisions in their lives, they are supposed to say this prayer. Look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people Israel and the land you have given us as you promised on oath to our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, so that brings us to the end of how the Israelites were supposed to offer their first fruits and tithing to the Levites once they get into the promised land. Again, with much emphasis on them reciting or stating over and over how the Lord had delivered them from Egypt and now they are prosperous in the promised land. Again, highlighting the significance of memory, the significance of not forgetting the blessings and the presence of God in our lives, which is still very applicable to us today. Like I have been saying all along, we should never forget where God has brought us from and where we are today. We should never forget how it is only because of the mercy and the grace of God that we really have possessions such as clothing, food, vehicles, and jobs. We should always give God the glory. We should always be thankful to God because it is only through him that we exist and are able to enjoy life. Okay, we come to verse 16. Verses 16 through 19 are essentially teaching us how Moses would recite the covenant or Moses would remind them, i.e. the Israelites, of their covenant relationship with God. How if they keep their end of the bargain, i.e. if they obey the Lord, God is faithful, God would elevate them, God would bless them, and God would really use them as his chosen holy nation to reflect his character to other pagan nations. So with any kind of a covenant, which is a mutual agreement between two parties, Two things are required, especially in the covenant that the Israelites had with the living God. The two requirements were, number one, God would uphold his faithfulness because he had sworn an oath to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would bless them. He would prosper them. He would mold and shape them as his chosen people to reflect his character to other pagan nations. And it, and it would be through 
his chosen people, the Israelites, that the Messiah, i.e. Savior of the world, would come from, i.e. Jesus Christ. That was God's part of the covenant or agreement. The Israelites' part of that covenant was simply obedience. All they had to do was obey God's decrees, live up to God's standards, uphold his laws. So these last verses, Moses would just remind them of that relationship that they have entered with the Lord. Okay, so let us just highlight some verses here. Verse 16, the Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse 17, you have declared this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in obedience to him, that you will keep his decrees, commands, and laws, that you will listen to him. Verse 18, and the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. Right away, that is self-explanatory. So you, you see how Moses had explained to the Israelites their part of the, of the agreement that they had agreed to obey the Lord. And then he went on to say that the Lord would uphold his part of the bargain. Okay, verse 19, he has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised, right there. So that was a covenant relationship between the two people, between God and the nation of Israel. But of course, like I have often said, and as I am sure you are aware, we, i.e. non-Jews, i.e. Gentiles, we are also partakers of this covenant relationship with God because by faith we have inherited this promise. We are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by faith, and we have a covenant relationship with God because of the precious and sinless blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord, Savior, and Redeemer. So this also pertains to us. So this brings us to the end of chapter 26. So we go right away to the major principles and applications in the last three chapters. So principle number one, we learned about God's protective care, was the marriage institute he created marriage he does not like divorce that continues till today we also learned about God's provision for the poor during the mosaic era or during the time of Moses that has not changed God still cares for the poor and the underprivileged in the society we learned about God's fairness in judging cases. God is fair. God is just. And even when we as his children are dealing with others, we should always keep in mind that we should be fair in our dealings with others because we serve a God who is fair. 
and who is a just God. We should apply godly wisdom when we are imposing punishment towards others because God is fair in his punishment towards those who are guilty. We learned all of that. And we also learned about giving. We talked about first fruits and tithing. Okay, we learned about the basic principle being that God is our provider. So when we give back to, to God's work, we are only acknowledging that it is God who gives us the ability to produce wealth. And it is God who enabled us to have the provisions in the first place. So what are the major applications? These are very obvious. Like I have often said, God loves a cheerful giver. We are told that throughout the scriptures and specifically in 2 Corinthians 9 verses 6 through 8, it is highlighted how God loves a cheerful giver. We are still to bring our tithing and first fruit to churches and Christ-centered ministries that are furthering God's work here on the earth. Except this time, God is not going to give you specific instructions. God is not going to give you details how to prepare to do that or that you have to go to a special place. God won't do that any longer. However, you have to give as you proposed in your heart for God loves a cheerful giver. You have to give as you are led by the Lord. That is the New Testament principle of giving. You should not give and grumble or complain. You should just give just as a way to say thank you to the Lord and to acknowledge him as the one who has prospered you in the first place. And also, we should always, always keep in mind that when we are helping the poor, we are actually doing God's will, furthering his work, because God wants us to continue to care for the poor. As long as we live in this fallen world, we will always have the poor people with us. Even Jesus tells us that. So as a body of Christ, our job is to help the poor, the underprivileged, because that would be pleasing to the God that we serve. So that brings us to the end of this session. Father God, we thank you for your such a good God. We thank you that you are such a compassionate God, that you forget no one. We thank you for the lessons we've learned from these chapters, your heart for the poor, your heart for justice. Teach us, Holy Spirit, how to serve one another with love and justice. Teach us how to wholeheartedly care for the poor and the underprivileged. Teach us how to wholeheartedly give to your work. Because when we do that, number one, we are showing that we love you. And number two, we are advancing your work. We cannot do this on our own. So we rely and depend on your Holy Spirit to strengthen us with these endeavors. We thank you for you as such a good God. And we have prayed in accordance with your will. And by faith, we believe this prayer is answered. And in the name of Jesus, everybody says, Amen. So as you proceed with your day today, remember that God is with you always, enabling you to overcome in Jesus' name. I am Chris Oram. Stay blessed.
and bye for now.